Hello, countercultural friends. This is Stephen Coates, beaming out to you from the Bureau of Lost Culture, somewhere in London, somewhere in 2023. Now, on this programme, we've had conversations with artists, writers, musicians, journalists, and just some very interesting human beings. But we haven't heard from a philosopher. I think that is because I'm perhaps a little bit intimidated by philosophy. I felt that, well, you know, it's not for me. It's perhaps beyond me. Maybe a bit boring, a bit bourgeois. Perhaps you feel the same. But maybe that's about to change, because recently I was at an event called Philosophy Slam, and it got me thinking because it was actually great fun, as well as thought-provoking. And I got to thinking that maybe philosophy in some ways, at least could be very countercultural indeed. So I've invited a philosopher to come to the Bureau. Robert Roland Smith is a polymath, the author of seven books, including the bestseller Breakfast with Socrates and The Reality Test. He's been a columnist for the Sunday Times, regularly speaks on radio and TV. And he practices something called constellations. It's a kind of group therapy which we're going to hear about. He's also rather handsome, not the image of a philosopher I had in mind, which was, I guess, somebody who looks a bit like Charles Darwin, you know, that kind of Victorian, middle-aged white man beard thing. Well, we're going to talk about philosophy, we're going to talk about counterculture. We're also going to get into Jacques Derrida, David Lynch, R.D. Lang, the living and the dead, philosophy as a psychedelic, expansion of consciousness an expansion of unconsciousness, and all sorts of other things. Welcome, Robert, to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you. Nice to see you. Nice to see you again. So last time I saw you, as I just mentioned, was at Philosophy Slam with your, let's call him your partner in mind, Mark Vernon. And for anybody listening, a question for me has been, can philosophy be fun? And actually, your Philosophy Slam, I would describe it as rather good fun, as well as illuminating... Uh, and a bit consciousness expanding. But just tell us what it is, Philosophy Slam, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking it's probably sit-down comedy, really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, basically what happens is we arrive in a room, Mark and I. So Mark Vernon, as you say, is my partner in mind, partner in crime. And we stand up in front of a crowd, and an audience throws out a single word, and then we'll try and riff on whatever the word is. So I think last time you came, somebody threw out the word denim, Mm -hmm. another person threw out the word croissant, and we just try and say something reasonably cogent about those things, sort of rapidly sweeping together bits of fragments of knowledge from history of philosophy or ideas or psychology or, or whatever. Or what's what you've read in the news today. Or what we've read in the news today, yeah. Mm. And I think that's part of the point. It's sort of um, because philosophy is considered so inaccessible and highbrow. Mm. I mean, we didn't begin with a campaign to make it accessible and lowbrow. Right. But we sort of thought, well... There's no reason why this stuff can't be enjoyable and fun and applicable to, you know, everyday life. Well, I've got a list of questions for you. Yeah. I don't want to jump ahead just yet, but one of them later is, is that can philosophy be for everybody, actually? And I think I'd like mm. to come back to that, yeah, right? Sure. Um, but just to reverse even a bit further about you, you've got an extremely impressive CV. Pause. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought I'd start off with a philosophical question, okay. right, which is... Who is Robert Roland Smith? Uh, it's funny you say that. I've just been devising a a course, actually, for people called Who Are You? And what became apparent very early on is it's extremely hard to separate the who from the what. So if I ask you the same question, who's Stephen Coates? You know, you might say, you know, I'm a man or you know, I identify as a man, at least you probably have to say these days. Mm-hmm. And I could say similar things. You know, I'm a man, I'm 58, I'm a philosopher... I'm a writer, I'm a father. But they're kind of more questions that answer the question, what are you, rather than who are you? So it becomes quite difficult to answer the question, who are you? And I think, there are, for me, there are two ways into that. The quick way into that is to say, what are the adjectives that apply to you? So, you know, what's Stephen like? You know, he's charming, he's clever, he's curious. <laughs> oh, and that gives me more of a sense of who you are rather than what you are. But then I was also thinking, actually, you can learn something more from psychoanalysis and psychotherapy in answering that question. 
And the answer it, to it is, I am whatever I make you feel. So, Give me a moment on that one. Yeah. Uh, you are whatever you make me feel. Okay. Yeah, right. exactly. So if I make you feel relaxed, mm -hmm. then, you know, I'm a kind of relaxing, comfortable, nice person to be around. If I make you feel scared or intimidated, then I'm a slightly intimidating, slightly scary person. And I think that's a more reliable reading, really, or barometer of the question because after all you know we are who we are in relation to other people all the time that's interesting yeah one thing i thought on my way here sitting on the bus was that we tend to think that we've got the kind of monopoly on who we are i was listening to somebody talking about their father who was dead yeah uh, and um, my own experiences with cause my father's dead but an experience of actually still being connected to him mm. my father just stephen's father probably felt he had a monopoly on who he was but in fact you could see it that he actually existed in all the minds of the people who knew him as well. And the bigger Stephen's father was this kind of creature who had a field around him of people who knew him, so his consciousness spread out. And, of course, in that sense, he's still alive. Yeah, and I think I've invited you along, maybe we'll talk about it today, mm. to this thing called Constellations mm. in a couple of weeks, which is exactly about that. Right. And one of the things there that's so pertinent to this is that there's no real boundary between the living and the dead, partly mm. because the dead still annex our mind in mm -hmm. some ways, partly because they're invited in by us because we want them to, but partly because some of the dead have unfinished business here, so they right. are trying to annex the right. minds of others. So I think it, it kind mm. of can reverse, reverse both ways. And that, of course, raises the question of, you know, do we know what's going on in the back of our mind anyway? You know, um, right. we can talk about the yeah. unconscious, we can talk yeah. about dreams and so mm. on. I mean, I was in psychoanalysis for a while, just around the corner from here, actually, on Mead Street for several years. And I think probably the process of self-knowledge is probably kind of infinite in a way. You can mm. keep unpeeling layers. Mm. Not that we're all so fascinating and complicated. It's just that the barriers to self-knowledge are pretty high because we don't want to know certain things about ourselves. We like to think we're coherent selves. We, it's an odd idea that we're not. You know, the monopoly owner of our of our mm. own psyche. So I've got my second question for you, which yeah. is, who is Robert Roland Smith? <laughs> <laughs> right, OK, thanks for that. <laughs> well, there's one thing my analyst used to say to me, actually, is exactly that. She said, you know, one thing I experienced about you, Robert, is that when I serve the ball to you, you knock it back <laughs> intelligently, politely and so yeah, on, but you never really answer the bloody question. Right, well, so, I'll, I'll let you off. Let's come back to okay, that one. I'll, right. Maybe I'll finish off with that one. But we've dived in yeah. quite deep already. But um, yeah. I thought we could get onto the subjects of philosophy as mm. counterculture. This Brewer of Us Culture is a show which is largely about countercultural themes, right? Yeah. And is philosophy actually counterculture of the mind? Because I don't know that much about philosophy, and I'm, I'm, I'm here as an inquirer. But it seemed to me that my image of it is that it's been around for thousands of years and it's always been slightly questioning the culture right which is one aspect of what we call counterculture so i thought maybe you could talk about that a bit is philosophy a kind of countercultural thinking and then we could focus in on the counterculture which is by which we sort of talk about the 50s and 60s 60s in particular where everything came up for question mm. yeah it's such an interesting question i mean if you think of the origins of philosophy well, what we think of the origins of philosophy, particularly in the figure of Socrates, mm. and he was nothing if not countercultural. I mean, he was a massive pain in the ass to the state in particular, and he was effectively assassinated by proxy by the state. And why? Because he went around asking questions, interrogating everything, taking nothing for granted, probing into, you know, the order of society, why people live the lives they do, why we call certain things good and other things bad. So in that sense... I think philosophy, certainly in that tradition, begins as a gesture of refusal or something countercultural. That, in its sort of most classic high point in the doctrine of scepticism with people like Descartes, is also the origin of science, actually, interestingly, mm -hmm. because it's a way of saying, no, we don't accept religion, for example. We need to measure everything, look at everything, get some data on everything, and then we'll tell you if we believe this or that. So it's strange to think of science as counterculture because we think generally these days science is the culture, the dominant culture, actually. Um, maybe less so in the States than here, perhaps. So there's been that strain throughout philosophy of you know, embracing the 
the question rather than accepting the, the dogma or the doctrine. But I think it's also worth saying there are exceptions mm. to that as well. You know, philosophy is, particularly these days, associated with orthodox, rational, mm. conscious thought. It's associated with universities and clever people and with logic, you know, so anything but counterculture. So the establishment, actually. Yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, if you ask what's the establishment about, other than being about sort of political, a political class, it would be the establishment of reason, the establishment mm. of government, the establishment of law. And the whole other side of philosophy is about the building of those edifices or the logical building of those ed edifices. Yeah, so well, maybe it's time now to return to that question I said earlier, which is that is philosophy for everybody. I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but I think that vision of philosophers, the sort of establishment, the kind of the Oxford dons, the rather stuffy academic world, I think a lot of us think about it in that way, but you're not really present it like that yourself. And, and so do you think philosopher, philosophy is potentially for everybody and can it uh, make us all happier? It's interesting because, you know, I was an Oxford Don for 13 years and um, that within Oxford there was a division actually already there between the orthodox, classic, slightly old school, logical philosopher, what's called Anglo-Saxon Anglo philosophy, on the one hand, which is not really for everybody because it's very technical, there are highly abstruse papers written on very narrow subjects. So that's one tradition and still very strongly upheld. But the other tradition, which was the one I was much more interested in, which is called continental philosophy, European philosophy, is all about how to live life, basically. Right. And that, for sure, right. is for everybody. It's like, what is life? How do we examine our existence? You know, what's a good life? You know, what is the nature of love? What happens to us when we die? It seems to me those are, for sure, those are questions for everybody, because whether we talk about ourselves as philosophers or not, occasionally we'll wonder about those things, right? You know, how can I live the best life? What do I value? Um, what's the best way to treat other people? So these very much belong in that other tradition, really, of philosophy, which is, yeah, definitely for everybody. It's for everybody, because I th I'd be amazed, you know, we're recording this in the middle of Soho, I'd be amazed if we went out on the street and did a vox pop and asked people, you know, what do you think about, you know, what do you think is important in life, that we wouldn't get answers to that those questions. Right. And we'd get answers because people think about them. Right. Know? And they'd say things like, yeah, I think what's important in life is being happy or having relationships or having a legacy. Or they might say dancing. Yeah. Or music. Yeah. You know, or clothes. Could be all sorts of stuff, yeah, exactly. depending on how old you are and things. Everybody is a philosopher at the moment you just start thinking mm. really you just wrote it broadly two strands right so there is the kind of let's call it the slightly older establishment yeah slightly more stuffy refined for a small group of people right quite technical basically and then there's the kind of the much wider um tradition of addressing what we might call philosophical questions which is like how do we live and yeah. how are you know what what can we do with all the stuff around us and what yeah. do we make of it all so there's like two strands, the philosophy of the school and the philosophy of the exactly. school, as it were. Yeah, and within that second tradition, there are, you know, key philosophers like mm. Montaigne, a French philosopher who wrote all about how to live. Mm -hmm. And that's extremely accessible stuff. I mean, it's, you know, it's written in 17th century French, so you have to mm. read a modern English translation mm. for sure, but it's, it's very accessible. But you also, within that tradition, also get people like Heidegger or Nietzsche writing about what it means to be human in a way that is a bit more technical for sure but the questions are universal and human and kind of vital in a way. Let's stick with that second tradition yeah. street philosophy let's yeah. call it whatever. Do you think that actually has the potential to make us happier? Now, that's a difficult one. I mean, when I was growing up, my mum always used to say to me, you know, Robert, you need to think less. <laughs> so, you know... That didn't work out. <laughs> that didn't work out very well. Ignorance is bliss, Robert, you right, know. Right, And I was thinking about that on the way here today, which is, you probably heard this phrase, the unexamined life mm -hmm. is not worth living. Mm -hmm. It's a famous phrase attributed to Socrates. And it's true, when you think as well as live, you kind of live twice. Mm -hmm. You know, you get your life and the reflection on it. 
Whether it makes you happier or not, I don't know. It's not my personal experience that mm. makes me happier. It brings me understanding. It brings me insight. You know, it brings mm. me knowledge. It brings me ways of framing things. Would I be happier being less philosophical? Yeah, I might well be. A friend of mine, very good friend of mine, uh, Glenn Duncan, who's a writer, we, we always used to divide the world into... Well, we, first of all, we used to divide the world into people who divide the world into things and people yeah. who don't. And then, but we used to divide the world into sort of what we call seekers and expanders. We considered uh, both of us to be seekers, as in asking questions about stuff all the time, right the way back to being sort of 13, 14. Mm. And uh, expanders, people who just enjoy life. <laughs> It was slightly envious. Yes, in, is it Narciss and Goldman, the Herman Hesse um, sort mm. of book? You know, Narciss is a secret and Goldman's just, he's out there fucking and fighting. And yeah. The book is about, in a way, who's happier, actually, at the yeah. end of the day. But we came to the conclusion that you're kind of stuck. Yeah. If that's the hand you've been dealt, can't get out of it. I mean, yeah. it's torture being told mm. that, actually, Stephen, to be honest, because now I feel like an expander trapped in a secret <laughs> body. It's like, oh, my God, you've actually named the tragedy of my existence. <laughs> Very deftly there. Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it'd be better to be an expander expander wouldn't it obviously we came up with that, that, that description a long time ago and and it's not quite as clear-cut and as, as times change one changes a bit as well you know all right well let's talk about Jacques Derrida you knew him personally I thought well I better get up to speed a little bit on Derrida because of our conversation and I had an interesting experience which was both like seeking and expanding because I read a bit about him and I, I reached the limit of my ability to understand quite quickly actually however the experience itself was quite enjoyable <laughs> <laughs> there must so, be an analogy in there <laughs> so, there's something in that somehow is that we don't necessarily have to understand it to enjoy to it. enjoy it sounds like sex to me but <laughs> yeah and we should say actually r.i.p Jacques Derrida's son who died just very okay. recent last couple of weeks Pierre Alferi who is a you know great well thinker and poet in his own right but yeah Derrida Derrida does suffer from this reputation of being you know difficult and obscure and all the rest of it and some of his work is and some of it his work isn't I mean he published I haven't counted actually but it must be at least 50 books I would have thought and numerous numerous articles and when you said you wanted to talk about Derrida I thought the standard accounts it seems to me are all way off beam like they associate Derrida with things he didn't want to be associated with for example this word deconstruction mm -hmm. I was looking at this there's a construction company in Soho called deconstruction <laughs> I was looking at it on, on the way here and thought yeah it's such a shame that he's associated mm. with that word because it sounds so negative and like he's just tearing down the edifice of of thought. So I thought what I may I might try and do is give actually a one specific example of an argument by Derrida that I think can be applied more broadly but sort of takes you into a wormhole. One of Derrida's big arguments is that the nature of writing gives us a huge clue into the nature of being. Okay? So he gives the example of quotation. Say I I say the word music or I write down the word music. You understand the word music, I understand the word music, and that's great. But if I say the word music, it doesn't stop you from going on to say the word music after me. You can quote me. You can then use the word after I've used it, because the word hasn't been used up when I've said it. It's not like words have a one-time only use value. We can keep saying the word music, just as we can keep saying the word microphone or laptop or AirPods or, or whatever. He says, that's very interesting. If something can be repeated, what does that say about the nature of the word? And this is where he starts making his big leap, basically. He says, if it can be repeated, then it was never entirely there in the first place. It's already ready to go and belong in another context somewhere else. With a slightly different meaning. With a slightly different meaning. So he comes up with this conclusion that anything that we think is fully there, like the word music when I say it, harbours this part of itself which is never which is not fully there and has to be not fully there so it can be repeated quoted changed iterated in future contexts and he goes on from that to actually say well that's kind of like the nature of being as a whole like you're sitting there opposite me Stephen. i'm sitting here opposite you we are here but insofar as we have life we're going to be somewhere else next you've got plans this afternoon i've got plans this afternoon so we're never fully here mm -hmm. ever mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we're going to need to be somewhere else later 
And in order to be able to move in time somewhere else, we have to be not fully here. You know, there's this huge thing these days about mindfulness. You probably, you know, lots of people meditate. And how do you be present to the other person? I mean, you, you know, you interview a lot. You know, you have to be present to the interviewee. Although, of course, you'll have other things going on in your head. So we value the notion of presence enormously and think how great to be present and not be distracted by Instagram or whatever. But what Derrida is saying is actually something more fundamental about that. We can never really be entirely present. And he says the whole of Western philosophy ultimately comes down to this view that there is such a thing as presence or what we might call being. But actually, when you interrogate it, it's built on absence, really, or the potential for absence. That For me, that's quite a nice way into talking about it. As you're speaking, so again, I'm feeling the limits of my understanding, right? The process of actually trying to understand it is actually quite enjoyable. Mm. Right? Um, just to bring it back to a kind of sensory thing in a way. But also that brings me on to something else that I wanted to talk about with Derrida yeah. and the 60s. Mm. It reminds me a bit of my psychedelic experiences. Yeah. My own personal psychedelic experiences have been mind-bending, but actually they've done the same thing as you were talking about then. They've kind of questioned the sort of fundamental ideas that things are separate, that they're not related to other things. They don't have these echoes. Mm. Um, so I was wondering whether, in a way, you could describe him as the sort of psychedelic philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Uh, uh, and also specifically because he seemed to kind of emerge in the 60s. He's from a sort of lower middle class background, right? Not from a kind of like aristocratic background, right? Yeah. So he came from the underground in a way or from, you know, from underneath. But what he was saying at the time, it did reflects some of the concerns of the countercultural years, didn't it? And he, he was a disruptor. Let's avoid deconstruction, but he was dis and he annoyed a lot of the establishment. And there was something about him, wasn't there not, that was in a yeah. way quite countercultural. Yeah, him. totally. And not just him. I mean, he and a group mm. of other people, you know, French intellectuals, quote mm. unquote, that he's associated right. with, particularly leading up to 1968 and the riots mm. and the student movement and all of that, there was a whole group called Telkel, which were sort of not just Marxist intellectuals, mm. but kind of Maoist intellectuals, actually, whether or not you agree with that, who, you know, who are all really mm. going back to fundamental fundamentals. You know, that got manifested kind of on the streets in terms of kind of student activity, you know, resistance to authority, feminism, questioning the authority of the, particularly in France, I mean, you know, mm. Paris, so mm. orthodox and the academy. De you know, and all uh, that. Yeah, exactly. An extraordinary ferment really going on there intellectually as well as politically. The legacy of Sartre is still there as well, still felt, you know. I mean, that really was a countercultural movement, but one that spilled out onto the street. Right. So there really was a link between, you know, high deconstruction, as it were, and social activism day. yeah and yeah. real social activism the other thing which happened in the 60s because mainly because of lsd but also because of you know new ways of thinking new ways of, of believing new ways of acting new ways of living actually you know lots of things have been overturned you know the previous generation's certainties and absolute yeah. ideas about things consciousness itself was kind of loosening up in that period that's what one of the things i'm kind of fascinated mm. by in a way that's been one of the roles of philosophy to loosen up and explore consciousness, right? Yeah. So there is a sort of parallel there, and I'm just intrigued by the notion that they didn't really seem to cross over. I mean, what would it have been like if Derrida had, had done acid? <laughs> I don't know that he didn't. I mean, he was right. maybe it was part mm. of it. I'm sure there are right. there is material around that. It's interesting you talk about the expanding of consciousness. Mm. I'd want to also flip that on its head a bit and say the expanding of unconsciousness is just as important. Mm. Because it strikes me, particularly in creative practice, and again, you know a lot more about this than I do, that people become more creative, not when they expand their consciousness, as in their awareness of what's going on around them, but rather when they have the courage to tarry with what's in their unconscious and bring out all of those things which in normal life might be considered shameful or taboo or edgy or disruptive or... Difficult. So if you think about the, I was thinking about the paintings of Francis Bacon, for example, mm. it looks like it's been served up from this stagnant pond of his unconscious. I mean, it's disgusting, most of it. But it's so striking and so vivid and so groundbreaking because of that, I think, because he wasn't censoring material mm. as it was brought out. And for me, yes, expansion of consciousness for sure, 
But just as important is probably this idea of expansion of the unconscious, or at least the tolerating of what's in the unconscious. I love that. For philosophy, for philosophers, what do they make of the unconscious? Well, philosophy and philosophers don't really talk about the unconscious uh, very much at all, partly because one of the big distinctions in philosophy is between philosophy and psychology. And most philosophers think psychology is nonsense. And most psychologists don't read philosophy. Of course, I'm exaggerating, and there are overlaps. But if you think about Freudian psychology or psychoanalysis, you know, very, very, very few philosophers would take that seriously. And one of the reasons I love Derrida's work is that he did, and he tried to integrate Freudian psychoanalysis with philosophy and, and other mm. things. Um, but there is that distinction between the two, because one is considered weird how do you prove the unconscious Mm. and the other is considered sort of logical this is a sidebar not about philosophy but about the bureau of lost culture regular listeners will now probably be weary of me pushing our bulletin and mailing list at the beginning of the show so i thought we'd surprise them by sneaking it into the middle this time and the reason is that we're coming up to our hundredth episode can you believe it I also received notification recently that our listenership is over 100,000, which is both mind-boggling and very pleasing. So thanks for listening. Keep listening. Tell your friends, their family, neighbours, boss, kids. The Bureau of Lost Culture is dedicated to exploring countercultural themes, oral histories, testimonies, strange, half-remembered, half-forgotten, buried stories. And as well as these broadcasts, we have various projects, live events, and ongoing research. If you haven't already signed up, do sign up for our bulletins because we want to find out more about you. So we're about to send out a little questionnaire. It'll be great to hear who you are, where you are, what you like, and what you like more of. I decided a long time ago that I'm happiest when contributing to the culture through music, words, stories. If you can support us in that, then terrific. Now, back to the show. What are philosophers doing today, apart from studying the philosophers of the past? What, what are you up to? <laughs> what are you? Good question. Uh, well, we meet in secret <laughs> rooms <laughs> and we shake each other's hands in very unusual ways. What is happening today is that the university as a whole is becoming democratised in the sense that knowledge is becoming democratize you can look anything up on the internet is what i mean by that so there's you know the walls around learning have come right down because everything's on our on google or or what have you so that's the first thing that's happening second thing you have a huge hunger for ideas now in the culture which i think is new and has been enabled by technology by ted talks and so on You've had lots of people setting up things like the How To Academy or School of Life or salons. I mean, there's loads of them now, which serve the need for, you know, people to talk about, hear about ideas. So philosophy is being dragged into that world. Also, I'm not in the academic world anymore, but, you know, if I was an academic philosopher and I was doing this podcast with you, it'd be like, great, there's something I can put on my CV. It, like, shows I'm doing philosophy in the real world. Like, how cool to come to a studio in Soho. So philosophers are slightly edging out into the real world, but still 99% of philosophers are still high by paid by universities. You mentioned Mark Vernon earlier. He basically gets paid through his psychotherapy practice i get paid by doing a whole variety of different things so there are very 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 few people like mark and me who are sort of independent whatever you'd call it philosophers Mm. thinkers but at the same time i think now much more than ever before you've got everyday people reading books about ideas there is demand out there and there is supply i mean i think the supply is a bit tricky because a lot of philosophers are used to talking in quite technical language. So there's still a bit of a mismatch there. Mm. But generally speaking, that middle ground is growing. I think, yeah, it's, well, it's good to hear that, because at the same time, of course, we're, we're living in an increasingly superficial materialistic world, right? So, yeah. I mean, and, you know, that's one of the things that I'm always asking myself and guests about is that, you know, where is the counterculture now? Because it seems to me that, you know, 
in those classic years, the 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe 80s, you know, the whole thing was up for grabs in some way, you know, and I'm thinking, where's that going on now, you know? It, it is going on, of course it's going on, it's going on in a different way, and there's always an underground, you know. It seems to me more important than ever that there's, uh, there's countercultural thinking because there's a lot of pressure around all of us, right? There's a lot of uh, t- temptations to superficiality. Yeah. yeah, I experience it myself every day. So, and, and materiality, you know. So the great thing in some ways about this stuff is that, compared with psychedelics, is that it's free. Yeah. Largely. Yeah. It's legal. Yeah. Not that I'm doing away with psychedelics, by the way, but I'm just saying as a kind of an alternative way of expanding the unconscious on the conscious, it yeah. seems to me to be very necessary right actually it's interesting you talk about psychedelics you probably know this but you know all of the important research now on depression and anxiety medication is all to do with psilocybin and things like that Mm. right and the main problems there are not the scientific evidence it's the legal structures around it and because the results as i understand it are extraordinary so i think that countercultural or, or otherwise that's the new frontier right mm. then maybe there is an opportunity at some point where philosophy and psychedelics can kind of meet and yeah. some extraordinary new beings going to emerge from that yeah you know? i mean for me the other thing actually is not the word i would use is intuition rather mm. than consciousness or unconsciousness okay. because i think that's the big mm. area you know how mm. do we help people mm. to trust their intuition and for people to learn that that's as skillful a guide to knowledge as the accumulation of philosophy books or Mm -hmm. or whatever each of us has intuition and it's highly accurate but it's buried for most of us for various reasons what are the things that bury it because we're supposed to be so coherent we're supposed to reason things out we're supposed to weigh things up analyze things we're supposed to go with what our peers tell us to go with or what Instagram tells us to go with. Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many things drawing us away mm-hmm. from this. Mm-hmm. But I think we all almost like this sort of fine index or compass or needle inside us. That for me is the thing, you know, maybe it's part of expanding consciousness, actually, that we need to bring out in people. That's why I'm so interested in constellations and systemic work. Talk about that in a sec, actually. But I just wanted to close that loop for me with Derrida and what he did. Yeah. He disrupted things. He shook things up. He shook up the notion that there is the truth, Hmm. right? You know, the centre where we can kind of, philosophy can identify eventually. Yeah. Has that led to where we are now, you know, where everybody's truth is valid and you know people talk about my truth oh i see did he do something which maybe has had some rather unfortunate consequences like you i absolutely you know wince or cringe Mm. or whatever when i hear the phrase speak my truth Mm. because often what we're hearing there is you know i'm projecting this thing about myself regardless of the facts and i've got very little tolerance for that it's a very good question because i don't think derrida single-handedly led the revolution towards you know complete relativism where there's no truth so whatever you claim to be true is true what he was doing more i think was just saying the values of truth and reason are belong to a master discourse of the west you have to remember he wasn't a westerner you know he was right, algerian. algerian right yeah he also said it belongs to a master discourse of the male his he made up this fancy phrase phallogocentrism which means basically all the Western structures are based on reason and the phallus, basically. And they're all, you know, basically European in their origin. You know, and so his was a critique Mm -hmm. of that. It wasn't saying, and therefore whatever you want to be true is true. In fact, he kind of went in the opposite direction. One of the reasons people find his work tricky to read is because it's so bloody rigorous. You know, most of his work is a reading of other philosophers line by line footnote by footnote this is why you shouldn't trust what plato says this is why you shouldn't trust what you know descartes says because on line 42 of page 48 (laughs) yes there's no truth the conclusion for that is not therefore any truth is acceptable it's therefore read much more closely the claims that are being made and dig beneath them for the kind of power plays that are implicit in them. Okay, so don't take things for granted. Don't think, yeah, exactly. Right. One of the previous guests we had on the show was the neuropsychiatrist Anthony David, and we talked about the countercultural anti-psychiatrist figure R.D. Lang. 
And one of Lang's themes was that, maybe like truth for Derrida, madness is relative uh, to an extent sort of socially constructed and that insanity might even be like an understandable response to an insane world. He was writing at the time when the Vietnam War was raging and it seemed like the threat of nuclear weapons could completely eradicate humanity. His anti-psychiatry theme, as it were, was that there isn't this thing called madness separate from sanity. You know, there isn't these oppositions, if you like. He was talking about mental health, actually, working with people who were in in various degrees of intense distress. Yeah, yeah. He was trying to do somewhat of the same thing, though, Um, you know, maybe by trying to loosen up those definitions of what madness and sanity are. Well, it's interesting you mention that because there was a famous spat between Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault after Foucault published one of his most famous works, which is called The History of Madness. You know, he talks about, you know, the incarceration of mad people. You know, is madness a crime or is it a disease? And the ostracization of the mad and, you know, the terrible show, you know, people used to be able to go along and actually visit Mm. mad people. Anyway, so Foucault produces this book, The History of Madness, and Derrida, who was a pupil of Foucault, so there's a bit of master-pupil revenge here or whatever, or certainly dialogue going on, says, you can't write a history of madness in principle. Why? Because madness is that which resists any attempt to describe it by definition. Mm. So a rational account of madness, it's a futile project of course Foucault absolutely hates this but he's got a point and it's not dissimilar Mm. from what you're saying like you know as soon as you describe madness in the language of science or reason or philosophy or logic you've lost the very thing you've tried to capture I mean how you do describe I don't know maybe theatre is the way to do it I mean Mm. I've had the experience in constellations coming back to that one of I remember this because it was so intense I had to represent somebody you know whose brother had committed a murder and would had been put in a psychiatric hospital and it was terrifying mm. you know because mm. the inner violence going on in that person's mm. psyche was so horrendous really and yeah beyond description really it's interesting you say about history of madness because you know it's a history of humanity isn't it i mean yeah. madness is what the culture yeah defines as madness you know it's exactly been all, all sorts of things down the years isn't it from just yeah. like you know having sex in ireland you know there's a sort of single woman you know obviously mad you know so yeah. lock you up the thing which i really loved about lang's he said many wonderful poetic things um one of the things he said about schizophrenia which i thought was really interesting was that he said it's just a mistake with regard to metaphor Oh, how brilliant. A metaphor is our way of kind of translating yeah. the world in some way and describing it. This around us in Soho, in this building and all this sort of stuff is that, you know, it's a one way of seeing reality, yeah. which we all agree on, most of us. There's a couple of people who don't agree on it. They've got different metaphors or they've got a mistake with regard to the yes. metaphor we're using. Yeah. And I thought that was a very compassionate way to describe it rather yeah. than just seeing it in terms of either a horrendous chemical imbalance or the mm. consequence of some tra- childhood trauma. Yeah, that's that's wonderful, that is. It also makes me think that, in a way, apart from anything else, as you were hinting at, really, to be mad is just not to belong. So mm. whoever decides the rules on who belongs or who doesn't is creating the definition of madness. It's about belonging, not belonging. Segregation, actually, is mm. the heart of it. And I also thought a while ago that actually... All it takes for a mad person to be considered sane is for somebody else to speak the same language with them. Mm. Because then you have, like you're saying, you have agreement about something. Like the people in Soho, we all broadly agree on what's reality. You know, this may or may, may, or may not be a table in front of us, but as long as you and I agree it's mm. a table, then it's a, it's a functional reality, if not a phys- philosophical one. And madness may be sort of similar. He tried to act that and live that out by actually say at Kingsley Hall you know a situation is sort of become a community where he and the sort of the staff or whatever you want to call them lived on equal terms with the mm. patients in uh, you know the, the mad people with some success we know that like people who are in very difficult psychotic states need to be protected from themselves and we need to be protected from them at times it's not as simple mm. as just talking about metaphors there is a practical aspect yeah. of it but he did try and live it out with some success you know yeah. to, to actually listen to people and to talk to them in their own 
terms, role play if you like, but yeah. actually to try and get inside their metaphors. Right. Yeah. So listen, let's talk about constellations. So you invited yeah. me very kindly to to one of your evenings yeah. coming up, uh, which I'm looking forward to, with some trepidation because I don't yeah. actually know what constellations is. So. Yeah. <laughs> but you're coming anyway. So it. Tell us about it and why, why, yeah. what it is, and why you do it, and you know how it's connected with what we've been talking about. Okay. So I mean, if you like countercultural experiences, this is a way of doing having a psychedelic experience beyond philosophy that doesn't involve taking any drugs. Mm -hmm. So what you will experience is you'll come to a room, I do a regular thing in Bloomsbury, you'll sit in a circle, it'll be about 15 people. I'll say, so who'd like to go first? That person will come and sit next to me and they'll explain very briefly an issue in their life. It could be, I miss my dad, you know, he's right. dead, but I still miss him. Or it could be, I can't get pregnant or... I'm losing money fast, or my boss hates me. It could be absolutely anything. To cut to the chase, what then happens is that the other people in the group, who are all strangers or semi-strangers, will then be chosen as representatives for different facets of this person's issue. So you, Stephen, who hasn't met this person before, might be asked to be that person's boss. Somebody else might be asked to be their mum somebody else to be their friend, somebody else to be their money. Hmm. Those four people stand up. You will find, and you'll have this experience hmm. when you come, you will find that the second you stand up and represent this person or this hmm. person's dad or brother or whatever, you will become active with the person you're representing. Hmm. No, it's not role play. I mean, people use different words for it, channeling, embodying, hmm. manifesting, hmm. Or whatever, of that which you are representing. And what we can then do is get a pure reading of the inner system of the person who's brought their problem or issue, free from their own projections and stories and accounts and narratives and defences about it. And then you get essentially a living tableau of that inner dynamic, the diagnosis that says, well, actually, you say your boss hates you, but what I see in the constellation, they're turning away, they're just very distracted by something else. Mm -hmm. To you, it looks like they hate you. In fact, it's they've got problems of their own, for example. So that's phase one diagnosis. Phase two, we then, or I in my role as, you know, constellator, move things around in order to produce a new constellation or configuration that's going to be facilitative of that person's growth, health, movement in, in the real world, basically. So that's it in a nutshell. Uh, but it works on this principle of, you mentioned the word field earlier, unconscious field connections between us all. I love the sound of it. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm still remain slightly... Uh, sceptical. No, no, I'm not, <laughs> not sceptical. I'm in, but okay. I'm just not anxious about it. It seems to be addressing things which are of somewhat mysterious, right? Yeah, totally. Somewhat beyond our own kind of idea that we have the monopoly on it and who we are. Well, exactly. Well, when you were talking about your dad, I mean, I was immediately seeing that in Constellation's terms. Mm. You know, I could see... You know, you'd say, I need to find some way of dealing with my mm -hmm. grief. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we'll have a representative for you, Stephen, and one for your dad. And we can see what's going mm -hmm. on there. And there are other things we can do in that constellation to enable you to come to terms with it. Um, we can you get uh, your representative to say sentence, very simple sentences to the father representative. Right. And they could be as simple as, I still miss you. Right. And we could have your dad saying, you know, I still miss you too, but now I'm here. Mm -hmm. You know, so it can be a very beautiful process, mm -hmm. actually, as well. It sounds quite 1960s, I would just say. Yeah. <laughs> it's a strange way, but I'm, I don't know whether it, when did it emerge, Constellations, as a, as a thing? Yeah, sort of in the 60s, post-war. Right. I mean, it has its roots in very mm -hmm. ancient Zulu ritual, right. actually, okay. to do with ancestor worship. The idea being that basically all of knowledge is always present. Mm. There's a Zulu word for it, which I've, I'll get wrong, so I won't cited here which also connects actually with western philosophical tradition particularly in plato you know for plato all knowledge is remembering so basically we go around the world forgetting everything in order to live so to know hmm. anything we have to unforget and he has a word for that anamnesis unforgetting is the way that we can access everything that we need to know I listened to a beautiful thing with David Lynch the other day. He gave this incredible speech. I think it was an honorary doctorate, but about exactly that, uh, how the field is accessible to us all. 
I mean, he accesses it, I think, mainly through meditation and other things. He's a big uh, practitioner of transcendental meditation, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, he has a beautiful, beautiful explanation of really what's going on in, in that in that process. And also seems to be somebody who's connected with the unconscious in, yeah, terms, of strongly. His, in terms of his work, right? Strongly. I mean, that you yeah. know, the uncanny feeling mm. you get, the feeling mm. that this isn't coming mm. from mm. the top of the head or the mm. left brain, and this is coming from somewhere else. If you have a golf ball-sized consciousness, when you read a book, you'll have a golf ball-sized understanding. When you look out, a golf ball-sized awareness. And when you wake up in the morning, a golf ball-sized wakefulness. But if you could expand that consciousness, then you read the book, more understanding. You look out, more awareness. And when you wake up, more wakefulness. It's consciousness. And there's an ocean of pure, vibrant consciousness inside each one of us. And it's right at the source and base of mind, right at the source of thought, and it's also at the source of all matter. And Maharishi Mahesh Yogi teaches a technique called Transcendental Meditation. It's a simple, easy, effortless technique yet supremely profound that allows any human being to dive within, experiencing subtler levels of mind and intellect and transcend and experience this ocean of pure consciousness. This pure consciousness is called by modern physics the unified field. It's at the base of all mind and all matter. And they now say, modern science says, all of matter, everything that is a thing, emerges from this field. And this field has qualities like bliss, intelligence, creativity, universal love, energy, peace. And it's not the intellectual understanding of this field, but the experiencing of it that does everything. You dive within and transcending, experiencing this field of pure consciousness, and you enliven it, you unfold it, it grows. It's money in the bank to get that beautiful consciousness growing, which is flowing creativity, the ability to catch ideas at a deeper level. Intuition grows. This field is a field of pure knowingness. You dive in there, you sort of just know how to go. You know how to solve solutions. It's like an ocean of solutions. And you, you can just feel this thing growing. But the ultimate thing for me is the enjoyment of the doing, the enjoyment of life grows huge. I love making films now more than ever before. Ideas flow more. Everybody has more fun on the set. Creativity flows. There's no, people look like friends and not like enemies. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, and it's us. In Vedic science, this field of pure consciousness is called Atma, the self, the self of us all. At that level, as Dr. John Hagelin would tell you, at that level of life, we are all one. We're one. Diversity up here, unity down below. Wanted to just sort of round off um, our conversation because we're getting to the end, um, Robert. Um, so, how does a philosopher spend their day in their 2023? <laughs> <laughs> <No>. Well, <laughs> obviously, I mean, in the white heat of cerebral interrogation. You know, without a pause, generally speaking. <laughs> well, you just reminding me because we used to do events uh, down at uh, Westminster Library, just around the corner on the square, and uh, it was actually the site of Isaac Newton's house. And I loved this story about that in that very house, uh, his housekeeper said sometimes he would he would wake up in the morning and he'd get to the end of his bed and just sit there <laughs> because he was thinking about something. And you'd find him, he was there for about three hours. Right. I think we've all had that experience. We've been yeah. slightly hungover, but um, yeah. But what is your day like? Do you have a sort of practice, philosophical practice, or is it just life? It's mainly just life. Mm. I mean, I, you know, I work a lot, trying to write books and so on. But you know, I do other normal stuff as well. I'm a big you football do? football fan, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the, the football philosophy on. of football. We should get into that since. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, Derrida was a big football fan. Right. Camus was a big football right. fan. Yeah. Right. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so, my final question for you, of course, is. Uh, 
who is Robert Rowan uh, yeah, Smith. Exactly. Robert Rowan Smith is the person who has recorded this podcast with you, Stephen. And we will let the listeners <laughs> infer from that, whoever I am. Thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Osculture. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks to Robert for expanding my mind and consciousness. How was it for you? Are you a seeker or an expander? Perhaps both. I put links to Robert and his work in the show notes. And perhaps I'll report back on how I get on in his constellations group. We've had some great suggestions from listeners of late. Some of our usual countercultural comrades and some new ones. Lauren in Arizona wants to hear more women's voices and queer stories. I agree. So keep the suggestions coming. Now, shall we finish with a tune after all that thinking and talking? I've just made an album, Jump Short Melodies. Here is one of the tracks from it. It's called The Ghost of a Flea. Till next time.